You're listening to Two Girls, One Crossword. Good evening, everyone. I'm Grace. Hello, and I'm Chelsea. You're listening. (laughs) What? (laughs) I said not to say good evening since instead you said hello. It's fine. I like it. She can't even let me have my intro. She can't even let me have my intro. It's not a very good intro. There's nothing wrong with a double greeting, I, I guess. Um, oh, it's the double greeting. It's not the use of good evening twice. It's any greeting twice. Yeah. No, it's fine. All Actually, right, that I makes know, sense. No. We, can both, we can both greet people. I feel no, like other okay. podcasts do that. No, it's fine. Anyways, this is Two Girls, One Crossword. Your favorite weekly podword crosscast where Grace and I argue about our opener. <laughs> Every opener. And that's actually the whole show. So uh, we'll see you next week. Bye. Um, um, no, that's not the whole show. It's not. It's another week in quarantine with us. Another week. Uh, it doesn't another feel day. like a week, does it? I don't know. Time means nothing anymore. It doesn't feel like anything, to be completely frank. No. It feels very it's much. Like we've, you could tell me that we've been in quarantine for a year, and I'd be like, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Or no, you could be I, like, oh, no, it's only been like three weeks. I'd be like, oh, yeah, three weeks ago right. I was doing stuff. I've seen things like... I was looking back at certain things that I've done for work, and I swore they were like seven, eight months ago. They happened in February. And I'm like, what? I was not in my apartment in February? I feel like I've never known my anywhere else but my apartment. Honestly, like the idea of going back to like a physical office is daunting. I think I I'm going to have like agoraphobia after this. I don't know. I mean, our social skills are definitely diminishing. I know. Um, we're not as funny. I'm which- just going to say it. Oh, that's the first bark of the evening, everyone. That (laughs) is my dog, and I apologize if you hear that kind of barking. We have a plan, though, for this week to to eliminate the barking. We'll see what happens. Seems to be working. (laughs) (laughs) Basically, we put him outside and said goodbye. No, I'm kidding. We would never do that. But see, this is what happens. My humor just kind of goes into weird places now that I'm in quarantine. Um, Yeah, it's weird. Like, I feel like January and February never happened. Whatever happened in them doesn't matter. Like, truly. Yeah. Um, anyways, so, <laughs> enough <laughs> talking about existential dread. Should we get into our hits and shits? I think we should or get cor- Oh, corrections corner? Somebody might have told me that I had a corrections corner this week. If they did, I don't remember. We don't do corrections anymore. No, we're past- sorry. There's no time for them. XX, out of here. It's cut. Um, okay, so we should go into a hits Heights and shites. Heights and shites. I want to start heights and shites off by reminding or letting any listeners who are kind of tuning in and out of the podcast that we are now new subscribe, not well, new channel holders on YouTube. So if you're interested in like watching us while we're doing the talking, you can find us by going to YouTube and typing the good evening girls or typing two girls, one crossword into the search bar. And um, you'll find some fun, grainy Zoom videos of us talking to you about yeah. crosswords. Something to look forward to. Yes. Um, but yeah, people like to watch uh, podcasts. Now that you're home, it's, I think a lot of people like aren't listening to podcasts in their normal schedule anymore, which is usually commuting. So now that you're home, sit back, put us on, pour yourself a glass of wine. <laughs> Um, it's gonna be a good night it's like we're all hanging out kind of yeah exactly if you like watching if you like being a third wheel in a group that doesn't admit you to speak it's like we're hanging out 
Yeah, and if you and your friends just like to get together and teach each other random trivia facts, then this is perfect for you. And that's what we do when we hang out, even when we're not doing the podcast. Every time we hang out, we come with a topic that we're (laughs) going to discuss. The whole hangout session is her 20-minute segment and my 20-minute segment, and then it's she's she's in the lift on the way home. Bye. We're we're really efficient. We can't do that anymore, so now we have to do this. Um, Okay, well, I have some. What else we got? Heights and shites. Okay, this is the New York Times Wednesday, May 27th by Chris A. McLaughlin. Okay. Uh, the theme of that, it was like word or phrases that had the four taken out of it. It kind of worked both ways, the word four. But the only the one that I really liked was 17 across. Your fins are nice and you're a graceful swimmer. The answer was fish compliments. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it just made me chuckle. And then the, with the theme, it also works as like fish for compliments, which is a phrase, a common phrase. Um, so I did like that. That's like exactly my type of humor. And then, um, (laughs) what I didn't like though, was one down. That's hilarious in a text. And it was R-O-F-L. We've talked about this this. before. At least it wasn't R-O-F-T-L, which is complete blasphemy. But really, um, nobody uses that anymore. Honestly, I'm I'm letting you know from a person to another person. Nobody uses ROFL. And if you are, you're like holding on to something that's dying. At least clue it as like, that's hilarious in a text of old. <laughs> right. Exactly. Of a long, long, long time ago. Um, speaking or like of, in an AIM chat or something. Oh, yeah. Know. Like, just, yeah. Back when instant message was a thing or like MSN or whatever. Yeah. Throwback. Um, speaking of relevancy in the... Um, New York Times, Friday, May 22nd, by Hal Moore. The, um, are you moving something around? Sorry. Yeah, sorry. I'm shuffling my papers. I can hear, like, you're rubbing or something, and I don't know. It's, okay. Sorry. It's probably my, I have, like, a million cords. You know, it's my gigantic um, headphone cord. (laughs) She's ruining everything? No. Um, what was I talking about? Oh, relevant stuff. So, like, ROFL is not very relevant in terms of, like, contemporary texting. But Friday, May 22nd. Um, the New York Times by Hal Moore. The puzzle was fine, but I really liked 21 Down. Awesome song in modern slang. And the answer a was... A bop? A bop. Well, just bop. Yeah, so... Yeah, I feel like we talked about like this that. on Twitter, like, what you would actually call, like, a, you know, a really popular song. Mm-hmm. And, like, a bop is is the thing people say these days. So, that was nice. It's what the Very kids good. are using when they yeah. let us into their circle. Mm-hmm. We overhear their slang. Yeah. Oh, um, I, I also wanted to mention, we ran a poll on our Twitter to t- ask what our listeners' favorite episode titles are called, um, written by our very own Grace. Thanks, Grace. That's um, me. I was only allowed to put in four options, so the ones I put in were Gag Countries and Reflexes, Open Wide and Say Omen, Shrek is a Sneakerhead, or Other. Nobody clicked Other, so they hate every other title. Sorry, Grace, apparently. That's fair. I get it. Um, the country, the gag countries and reflexes and open wide and say omen both tied with forty two point nine percent. Shrek is a sneakerhead came in at second for with fourteen point three percent of our total listeners liking that one. So people like the gag stuff. I'm telling you, they there do. was what was that other one that a lot of people anything that's like naked or that's like somewhat risque in the title always gets more listens. It does. So we're on to you. Okay, we know we know we what know. you like. And there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing. It's fine. <laughs> um, I did. I've been doing the USA Today's, as yes. you know. I did a couple this week too. Mm. 
Did you do May 27th yesterday, I believe? Or was that oh, today? Zhao Xin? Yeah. Yes. My favorite? Yes. There was a lot in this puzzle that I like. I'm just going to name a few. Um, 49 down, stories that might involve shipping for short. Oh my God, this was so funny to me. Yeah, fanfic. Yes. If you don't know, shipping is when uh, like people want two characters to be romantically involved with each other. So you could say, for example, like I ship like Ron and Hermione or, you know, right. ship like is that. like short for a relationship. So yeah. they turn but it it's into also a verb. like a verb. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I like that. I just like fanfic. In there. I do too. Fan- and the oh, clue yeah. was really good. Um, it threw me and Matt off. We were like shipping, shipping. Yeah. I was like shipping like FedEx. <laughs> right. Exactly. We were like freight. <laughs> um, if you don't know what a fanfic is, what planet do you live on? But it's act. It's like um, a story, a fan fiction. So basically, fiction mm-hmm. written by fans. It's usually like side stories or different takes on stories from existing uh, right. books and movies. And, and there's like a whole world. And some fanfics get made like Twilight or. I forget which one. I think Fifty Shades of Grey started off as like a Twilight fanfic. It did. And yes, then that's turned into fit, its Shades own book and movie. So Yeah, a lot of fanfic writers have gone on to become like actually published authors, which is pretty cool. I mean, fanfics are literally fans writing their own version of the characters and their own version of, of the story. So it could be anything from like Harry Potter to um, the most random star trek episode that had two characters he saw once somebody will take those two characters and write a fanfic about them i'm not people like um compare or like combine characters you could do like the rat from ratatouille and simba (laughs) you know you could do whatever you want there's no rules and usually they do get extremely sexual um, in my experience (laughs) for some reason i mean i know why because people like that but yeah like if if you're itch if you're like you know what I liked Lord of the Rings, but there was not, it was like too rated PG for me. I guarantee you someone has written a fanfic that will uh, tickle your fancy. Yes. So I played God sure. of War and um, I was dying for more God of War content. I looked up God of War fanfiction and I was really, really upset that I did because that was probably the most vulgar sex fanfictions I have ever seen. Um, I'm not saying that it's good, no. <laughs> necessarily well written, but if, if that's what you're looking for, you right. can find it. You can really find it. Grace, I will tell you what it was when we're off this call. Oh, I don't even want to. Okay, yeah, we'll, we'll discuss <laughs> later. Um, but anyways, from this same puzzle, I also liked 55 Across, Why Not Me author. Why Not Me is Mindy Kaling's mm-hmm. second book. Um, I like both of her books, by the way. If you want to read a book about someone who... She, she, like in one of her books she says that she has the confidence of like a white blonde straight guy uh she just like believes that she like belongs and, and yeah. is entitled to things even though she's like an indian woman and she has been able to like make a huge name for herself and get into yeah. circles i mean she's awesome like she became a writer for the office without having like a tv writing credit before then just because she kind of walked into the in uh, a meeting with what's his face and you know talked herself onto the team so and she's just really funny her books are good and then um also 58 across when they see us or blank they see us when yes. they see us which is a tv show or movie yes. about Something. Uh, i think it's a it's about like police brutality right yeah it's a movie i believe um it was based off of a book i believe as well maybe a young adult mm-hmm. book if i'm remembering correctly and then like that too a quick shout out to 43 across chips with a cool ranch flavor 
I just want people to know that, um, well, it's obviously Doritos. Cool Ranch is <laughs> if, if it's the not best. obvious to you, then then you can't sit with us at lunch because I eat Cool Ranch Doritos like it's my job at work. She does. Um, and then Chelsea gets the regular Doritos. Our lunches always match and it's very annoying. But And um, people like to point it out to us because I'm like, um, you guys are, you're drinking a Coke, you're drinking a Pepsi, you have a peanut butter sandwich, not cut in half you have a peanut butter sandwich cut in half you have cool ranch doritos and you have regular doritos and i'm like sorry we're synced now unfortunately our brains are synced it's just what we have to do now we're all thrown off we're off our game but i wanted to share a tidbit that in europe cool ranch is called cool american okay there's nothing about us that's cool except our doritos but yeah i don't know why maybe ranch is not like if any european listeners out there is ranch not like a or, or isn't i don't well no i feel I think you cool ranch is based off the flavor ranch right right yeah i think so there may be ranch dressing is not common in europe so people would be like what the hell does that mean so this is like american flavor <laughs> i don't know is, i feel like ranch as the flavor for america is the perfect that I, that does fit it does yeah so anyways that's my what I got? that's my take that's my hot take i feel it i feel it okay the one of the other uh, usa todays i did was the one today by caitlin reed i really liked 10 down gochujang for one which is paste and if you're not familiar with that it's like a really really popular korean like spice paste that you can put in like a ton of korean dishes um i really liked seeing that um and then 57 down where sylvia arden boone was tenured and the answer is yale I really liked that for two reasons. One, Boone was the first African-American woman to receive tenure at Yale, which is really cool. That happened in 1988, Um, and she's an art historian, which is cool. But in a lot of crosswords, whenever a school is um, clued, like if you have to put UCLA or UNC or, you know, Yale University, they always, not always, but a lot of the time kind of clue it as sports, you know? We've mm-hmm. talked about this. There's and I'm like, there's so many cool things that happen at universities that aren't sports. I would really like to see that kind of representation. And we got that today in today's USA Today puzzle. So that was cool. Cool. Yeah. Uh, oh, I'm done. <laughs> My height's. Oh, you're done. Yeah, Sorry. Yeah. I was I was like, why are you staring at me? <laughs> We're actually really good at doing this whole video thing, guys. Um, did you do the Friday, May twenty second New Yorker? No, you uh, maybe you didn't. I don't know. Maybe. Um, it was by, no, I don't think so. It was by Elizabeth Gorski. Um, I liked 39 Across a lot. It just made me laugh to like type it in. George of the Jungle costume. Loincloth? Ape suit, because it's true. Like the, There's like a guy who actually played the like big ape in the movie. Which I thought oh, was... I'm thinking of Tarzan. I don't even know. If it, yeah. Um, <laughs> I do like that clue for it. I also like yeah. ape suit. Um, I know. Ape suit's a great answer you, you don't see ape suit a lot in crosswords okay so you don't you really don't i've been like, saying that for years she has been every single episode she says she says that uh and of course i have to shout out the sunday washington post by evan bernholz <laughs> this is like the best thing that could have happened to me all week and it did happen so thank you evan um it was 100 across idris who played mccavity the mystery cat in cats of course, it's Idris Elba, but the clue yeah. is what's important here, okay? If you don't know, Chelsea and I love cats, the play and the movie. We, yes. We've seen both. Yes. Um, I laughed so hard when you sent me that because people are out for Idris for being in cats. First of all, if you haven't seen cats, you need to see it because it is yes. truly an experience. But Idris Elba's character 
his cat, all the other cats have like stripes, polka dots, whatever. Idris Elba's cat is like just dark brown all over, like the color of his skin. And he's wearing like a jacket most of the movie. But then during one part, like during his big song, which McCavity in the play has no lines. But yeah. of course, Idris, they're going to give him lines. Of course. He throws off his jacket. It was truly shocking to see him there because he's wearing a skin tight. Like he, he looks like he's naked and his skin is made of uh, velvet. Yeah, velvet. It's and just like truly every nook and cranny of his body. You could see everything. It literally looked like he was naked. And, you know, you'd be thinking, like, well, that sounds great. It's Idris Elba. What are you complaining about? There was something so off-putting about it. I can't even describe. Also, he has a tail, and he's, like, gyrating and has ears. Gyrating at Judy Dench, okay? I'll leave it there. Yeah. It was... Just see the movie for that scene alone. I think... And let us know. We shrieked aloud when Yeah, we saw it in theaters. We gasped. (laughs) I have never been that loud in a movie theater before, but um, also... There was like, I forget who it was. I think it was the New York Times or New York Post. Maybe it was the New Yorker too. (laughs) But when he had tested positive for COVID, they like wrote an article and the headline was Cats actor Idris Elba tested positive for COVID. (laughs) And all the comments are like, why would you introduce him as that? Like he's, you could just say Idris Elba. He's a household name at this point, but he's also (laughs) been in so much more than just cats. Um, (laughs) But I love that that's how he's like being introduced now. This is like I, from Cat yourself. <laughs> I bet you he's like he's like I can't believe I did this movie. I can't believe that they're writing about me like that. I mean, could you imagine? Some first no. of all, somebody had to persuade all of these major actors to say yes to this film. Though apparently Judy Dench was like knocking at the door saying, "I'll do it." She was supposed to be in the play back in the day. Yeah, she used to be a Broadway performer, but she broke her foot and couldn't be in the play. So this was kind of meant to be. But I right after I saw the movie, I tweeted. Cats owes Judy Dench an apology, and they do. You, I can't even explain. Just go, go watch the movie. Maybe we can do a whole episode about cats. Yes. We should do a live watch with cats, a watch with us. Oh, I would love that, actually. Mm. Yeah. We'll, we'll see we'll if anyone's it. interested we'll in that. <laughs> I'm available every yeah. night. Let um, us know. Yeah. Uh, what else did I want to say? Oh, okay. I'll end my um, hits and shits with the Saturday New York Times, uh, Wina Lou and Eric Agard puzzle. Uh, always love Eric's puzzles, always love Wina's puzzles, so this was great to see, like, a, you know, them putting one out together. Collaboration. A collab, if you will. Um, 33 ac- across, held eye contact for too long, say. And the answer is, made it weird, which I just really <laughs> liked. Like, made it weird? Oh, it's perfect. Or I love that. 23 down, slightly off, was a bit strange. 29 down was just, quote, question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark, end quote. And the answer was, I don't get it, which I really liked. Oh, my um, gosh. That's yeah. perfect. The, it was just a really good puzzle, Ava Ole. And I just liked those clues in particular as being fun and different. Yeah. Which is what we like here. Fun and different. Just like us. Yes. Um, so if anyone's so watching different. us on YouTube right now, our, like, our distance from the camera is uh very different (laughs) so So i'm like tiny you're like halfway down you're like right here (laughs) i'm like just a head (laughs) on the screen basically (laughs) that's like tiny anyway um she tries her if you want to see then come to our youtube channel and see Ooh. uh last thing last thing last thing last thing um grace has some really cool news she one of her um, spoken word stories that she does for the moth is going to be featured um on the npr what is it radio um 
moth story hour, mo- I believe. Yeah, the moth story hour. Um, so that's really cool. We're still waiting to get the confirmation on, like, when the actual thing will be on air or whatever. But yeah. we will it's definitely either, let you know. It either would have been last Friday, it, with this comes out on Monday, last Friday, or upcoming Friday. Um, but we will tweet about it. So yes. keep your eyes out. You can and hear your ears me. open. Tell a story. Can you give us um, a one-word teaser? Furbies. <gasps> I know we've got some Furby lovers out there, so. <laughs> <laughs> I know. They keep hounding us. Stop emailing my personal email, okay? Um, but yeah, that's very exciting. I can't wait to hear my name be said in that NPR voice. You know, know what I'm talking about. If you know, you know. I'm so oh. proud of her. I cannot. I feel like a like a, a mom who's seen her, her little caterpillar <laughs> larva grow f- wings <laughs> well they will give a special shout out to our podcast so we're basically we famous them. now so yeah. sorry we can't talk to you guys anymore no i'm just kidding please don't sorry stop npr oh my gosh if npr like bought us bought our podcast that would make NPR my life would be ridiculous if they bought our podcast they'd be like you maybe guys they're trying insane. to reach out they don't need us but maybe they're trying to reach out to like a younger crowd who knows spice who knows? things up a bit <laughs> right um all right should we flip a coin let's flip the coin baby all right i'm going to the website I'm flipping the coin now. We actually don't own real coins, so we, we hate have to coins, use a virtual one. <gasps> it's me. I feel like it's been you. I know. I know. I'm sorry. Do you, do you want to do best two out of three? No, it's fine. All right. Fine. We're going to okay. move on. It's me. It's me. It's me. I guess that means it is my turn once again to go first. Thank you for being such a champ about it. Okay. My topic comes from the Friday, May 22nd, New Yorker by Elizabeth Gorski, 40 Across, Sicilian Crime Syndicate. I've got no idea. She's got no idea. It's the Cosa Nostra. Okay, and I'm going to clarify here. Cosa Nostra refers to the Sicilian Crime Syndicate. La Cosa Nostra is what the name the FBI gave to the Americanized version of of Cosa Nostra. Just so you know. Okay? I was wondering. I know you were. I kind of <laughs> could see it in your eyes. <laughs> um, off the top, I'm going to list off a couple sources for you of where I got a lot of my information. Um, and then whenever it's relevant, I'll kind of tell you again where I got my sources because this is like a little bit of a dense topic. Um, the Kings and Generals YouTube, they had a really cool video that I watched basically dictating the origins of the Sicilian Mafia. History.com was helpful. FBI.gov was helpful. And Ooh. the You're Wrong About podcast. They're good too. So, what is Cosa Nostra? It is called Cosa Nostra, the Sicilian Mafia, the Mafia, um, those are the three things you can call it. Uh, Cosa Nostra means our thing. And I'll talk a little bit more about like what they use that to signify. It's a crime organization, okay? Um, and it's broken up into families or clans, with each ruling family ruling over a territory. And that could be a village, a town, a certain neighborhood in a city, um, or a city at large. It is not a centralized organization. So it's an association of independent families or gangs who sell their services, like, under this common name, this umbrella, this common brand, if it, as it were. So within each family's territories, they run rackets and they kind of orchestrate other activities as well. Their core activity, though, is protection racketeering. So I've always heard racketeering or, you know, protection racketeering, but I don't actually, I never knew what it actually meant as, like, a thing. Like, 
Okay, it's illegal. I know that. So protection racketeering is when a gang provides protection to a business or a group through violence that sits outside of the law. Um, so basically, you have a farmer who's like, I these people keep stealing my cows. The mafia can come in and be like, okay, pay us X amount every month and we will make sure that your cows won't get stolen. So that's basically what protection racketeering is. Is that really the kind of jobs they take? At the very, 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 very beginning, yes. Okay. Not now. I mean, I guess they technically could, but... They don't have time for that now. Not right now. They got bigger things on the horizon. So, let's see. Protection racketeerings tend to appear in places where police and, like, the judiciary system cannot like, provide legal protection for people. So these aren't things that, like, I mean, at the same time, they happen here in America where apparently, like, our police force and, like, our judges are not corrupt. So mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll see. Lots of air quotes there. Yeah, right. So Cosa Nostra has been active since the 19th century, and it was founded in Sicily. By the 20th century, following, like, a wide-scale immigration from Sicily, the organization spread to different parts of the world. So, Venezuela, USA, Canada, South Africa, to name a few places that you can also find Cosa Nostra today. According to uh, the FBI in 2014, Cosa Nostra has approximately 2,500 made men and an unknown number of associates. So, made men are people who are fully initiated in the organization. Anybody that's not fully initiated is just considered an associate. To be made a made man, you have to be Italian or of Italian descent and sponsored by another made man. And I'm going to talk a little bit about initiation later on. So where does it all begin? I'm going to start with the quote from a journalist politician named Luigi Rosini. Um, and he wrote a book called From Caesar to the Mafia, Persons, Places, and Problems in Italian Life. And it was published in 1971. I really liked this quote because I think it kind of shows why the mafia existed and how people in Italy feel about the mafia and what it has done. Quote, the reason Sicily is ungovernable is that the inhabitants have long ago learned to distrust and neutralize all written laws and govern themselves in their own rough, homemade fashion, as if official institutions did not exist. This arrangement is highly unsatisfactory because it cures no ills, promotes injustice and tyranny, leaves crimes unpunished, does not make use of the Sicilians' best qualities, and has kept the country stagnant and backwards in almost every way. Damn. Yes. So it's hard to trace the very, very beginnings of Costa Nostra because the mafiosi or the members are very secretive. They don't keep written historical records. Yeah, they don't, they don't update their Wikipedia page. <laughs> they don't, no. The, the information on the Wikipedia page is not, you know, what is it, approved by, you know, the bosses. Yeah, not sanctioned. Yes, exactly. They've also been known to spread deliberate lies to kind of keep truth from hitting close to home, you know, they don't want all of their secrets out, you know? Yeah. So that makes sense. It, it does make sense for a criminal organization to not want people to know about them. It just does. Yeah. So, but we do know Cosa Nostra began in Sicily. Sicily has a long and complex history, as does all of Italy. I'm not going to go into that. But one of the biggest things about Sicily is that up until the 19th century, it had kind of gone through hand after hand of, after hand of colonizer. Um, so Greeks, 
uh, Carthaginians, Romans, Byzantines, Arabs, Vikings, Normans, Germans, and finally the Spanish. Um, and in the early 19th century, they were controlled by the Spanish, particularly the house of Bourbon II Sicilies. Uh, while they were under the rule of the Spanish, Sicily was transitioning from feudalism to capitalism in terms of like an economic way of life. Nobility originally owned most of the land and enforced the law through their own private armies. But once Italy was annexed, or once Sicily was annexed by Italy in 1860, they redistributed large portions of public and church land to private citizens. Um, so that's kind of how we transitioned from feudalism to capitalism. Landowners increased from 2000 in 1812 to 20,000 in 1861. So it's like a huge redistribution of wealth. Yeah. Now that there was more landowners and money flowing in more diverse types of hands, there were more disputes that needed settling, contracts that needed enforcing, and property that needed protection. Remember, no more feudalism, which means no more private armies to protect the land and property. So at this time, there was fewer than 350 active policemen for the entire island of Sicily. And some towns didn't even have an active or permanent police force. They would kind of just show up every couple months take the criminals, and peace out. It wasn't very helpful. Yeah. Banditry was rising. So were food prices. Peasants were forced to steal. So crime rates were on the rise, basically. And there's no law enforcement. But also there's more money flowing into more hands. Remember, we now have 20,000 landowners. Mm -hmm. What are these landowners going to do? Who are they going to turn to when people start stealing their cattle or people start stealing their crops or whatever? Yeah. They turn to these extra legal protectors, which basically eventually organized themselves. They got together, they officially made an organization, and they made the first ever mafia clans, which is kind of cool. I mean, not cool. Wow. It's just interesting. So it seems like it started pretty, like, innocently in a way. It absolutely did. I think about how appealing it is to, like, you're finally like wealth is redistributed and finally the peasantry has some form of income, but the mm -hmm. there's no government establishment to kind of help them, you know, keep their wealth, protect them, whatever. So then, of course, they're easy prey for criminals. And so these kind of like vigilante people come out of the, the brush and they're like, we will protect you. The problem is in order for they weren't protecting them out of the goodness of their heart. They were exploiting the peasantry for money. Oh, yeah. So it's like... No one does anything out of goodness of their heart. And if you I've do... learned anything from this podcast. <laughs> Everybody needs something, okay? We all do. Do, do, do. Where, where was I? Right. Okay. The first ever police reports in Italy describing mafia activity um, happened in the latter half of the 19th century. Um, and by 1898, the police chief of Palermo, which is like a city in um, Sicily identified 670 mafiosi belonging to eight mafia clans. So that's pretty wow. big. That's a lot. The report also talked about initiation rituals, codes of conduct, the types of criminal activities that they would get up to. It was like counterfeiting, kidnapping, robbery, intimidation, murder. Um, and then it also talked about how the mafia kept like secret funds that they would use to support families of imprisoned mafiosi. Um, to help pay for defense mm -hmm. lawyers. So you can kind of see, like, they're trying to start having um, political sway. They were also buying politicians off at this point, you know, swaying elections, things like that. Yeah. 
So by 1925, you might know of this guy named Mussolini. Um, at this time, he was the prime minister of Italy. Um, and in 19, 1925, he had this plan to wipe out the entirety of the mafiosa. He thought they were basically going to um, undermine his plan to have fascist control in Italy. He was kind of mm-hmm. right because um, they're more of like the capitalist and then you have the fascist. I mean, whatever. So it wasn't really his goal at the beginning, but then he visited Sicily in 1924. He was passing through a town called Piana de Greci. He was received by the mayor there. Turns out the mayor was also a mafia boss. His name was Francesco Cuccia. Cuccia was amazed at how many police Mussolini had brought with him to kind of escort him and protect him. So Cuccia turned to Mussolini and said, you're with me. You're under my protection. What do you need all these cops for? Mussolini rejected Cuccia's offer of protection. Cuccia was like, you know what? Fuck you. And he told everybody to to like all the townspeople to not attend Mussolini's speech. And so Mussolini was humiliated. So that that is embarrassing. That's extremely to do a speech embarrassing. And no one shows up. I know. He stuck to his politics, I guess. <laughs> so Mussolini appointed this guy named Cesare Mori um, to be the prefect of Palermo. And Mori basically waged war against the mafia families. And by 1928, more than 11,000 suspects were arrested. Many were tried en masse. And more than 1,200 were convicted and imprisoned. And others were just exiled without trial. So basically, he like basically tried to wipe out all of the mafia. Um, He returned to Rome in 1929. He didn't permanently end the mafia, but he certainly did a good job of suppressing it. And as a result of this suppression, many mafiosis fled to Canada and the United States. Hmm. Hmm. And now look at us. Um, There's this guy. (laughs) Thanks, Italy. Yeah, right. Thanks, Mussolini. Oh, shit. Um, Niccolo Rizzuti, Vito Rizzuti, those were two of, like, the hugely popular mafia bosses in Montreal. They came from Sicily after this suppression. Carlo Gambino and Joseph Bonanno settled in New York City and basically founded up the five family families in New York. So we got a lot to thank you, Mussolini, for helping us. It's weird to think of mafia in Canada. I know Canada's not perfect, but they just seem like, you know, know. the peaceful, like, (laughs) upstairs neighbor. I know. I'm like, why would you you want to go do things illegal in Canada. I feel like Canada should be like where, you know, everybody goes to like chill out and yeah. you don't, you just Canada don't. has problems too. Though. They do. They, they, do they, have. they have blood on their hands. Okay. Everybody does. Not, Come at not me. everybody, but most governments, all governments. So wake up yeah. sheeple. <laughs> Speaking of governments re- wreaking havoc. So mm-hmm. obviously we go through world war two, right? Um, eventually allied troops, that's the United States. They uh, invade Sicily and begin to liberate Sicily from, like, fascist control. Um, but they did it shitty because they sucked. Uh, crime soared. Um, inmates escaped from prisons. Banditry returned. The black market was thriving. Fascist mayors were thrown out of office. But then the Allied government appointed replacements. The problem was that the replacements were mafiosi from before the war began. So, like, they're trying to get rid of the fascists, but they're putting in mafiosi uh, into the into the the open seats, as it were. Um, This basically shifted the mafia from being purely rural. So a lot of their control were like little towns here and there spaced throughout Sicily. They -hmm. were moving the mafia mafia from the rural to the more urban setting, and it just basically changed the entire landscape of the mafia as a whole. It made it a large-scale international organization. So, okay. I got to this point in my research, and I was like, okay, 
I can either continue telling you the history of Cosa Nostra, which is really dense and seriously not something that I can cover in 20 minutes, or I can use my, you know, research efforts and take you guys elsewhere. So I decided to do that. I'm Ooh, instead, you're taking us on a journey? A little journey. Not too far. I'm just not doing okay. history anymore. Um, I'm going to talk to you about how families and clans are structured and some of their rules of conduct, etc. Cool. So let's, let's do it. Do it. There is this guy, Tommaso Buscetta. Um, and we have him to thank for understanding how Cosa Nostra is kind of structured, like their hierarchy. Uh, Buscetta is an informant, or as the mob calls them, mafia turncoats. Um, he informed on the Italian mafia in 1984. And this is kind of how we know what the structure is and like how people get into these positions. Mm-hmm. Reminder, Cosa Nostra is not headed up by one person. It is like a loose confederation of families. Some say there are a hundred or so families. Okay. What is the structure of one family? At the top, you have the boss, the head honcho, a.k.a. the capo familia, head of the family. Mm-hmm. The boss is aided by an underboss, also known as a soto capo. And then the boss is, act- is supervised by an advisor, a.k.a. a consigliere. Under the command of the boss, he has troops, like these groups of troops. They're soldiers. They're known mm-hmm. as soldati. These groups themselves are called decini or decina, and they're led by the capo decina. Decina means like of 10. It makes 10. Yeah. Um, some of these groups are not necessarily made up of 10 soldiers, but can have anywhere between 5 to 30 in a group, and it really depends on how large the family is. Mm-hmm. So how do these people come into power? Bosses are elected by the soldiers, though so sometimes it can be taken through like violent acts like you know somebody could kill the boss and like take over Um, yeah that does happen but most of the time they're elected on a yearly basis most sicilian families are very very small compared to the american mafia families like the five families so costa nostra bosses have contact with all the members of their family i mean they don't generally get anything out of being the boss of the family uh, in terms of privilege or rewards um it's more mostly just about uh dictating the movements of, mm-hmm. you know, your syndicate, your little group, your family. Um, and also his position is relatively short-lived. Like I said, elections are held yearly. So some people can, like, have multiple terms and others are voted in and out. Yeah. Well, are these, when you say family, like, these people are all actually related to each other? No. Okay. Um, there are a lot of the same last name, like, blood kin in these, you know, families. But a lot of times blood kin will move away and join other families. Um, or you have like, I'm a guy and my sister marries this guy and he goes through the whole initiation process and now he's in. Okay. And then they could be connected through marriages and right. But okay. it's not, so it's not necessarily not, like, cause otherwise it's like, well, wouldn't just like great, like the grandfather or whatever be the head person. But right. no, it, it's like, there could be multiple people of the same generation. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Okay. Underbosses are second in command. Um, and they're usually a family member to the boss. So like a son. So that's the person okay. who serves underneath the boss. Um, and they take over the family if the boss is sick, killed, or imprisoned. Then you have the consigliere that's also elected on a yearly basis. They supervise the action of the boss, the soldiers, and particularly in matters of finance. Um, they're also supposed to advise in like on internal disputes. So like in the actual family, if there's, like, problems, he advises for that. Um, mm-hmm. And it really calls for them to be impartial, whatever that means. 
Then we have associates and associates are basically tools. And I don't mean like tools, like you're a fucking tool. I mean, like they're to be used. They are people who work for the family, but aren't real members of the family. They can be corrupt politicians. They can be prospective mafiosi. They can be the, the kid on the street that blows a whistle every time they see a cop car. It could be anybody. It could be the vet, vet like, or I don't know if this is actually true, but in movies and stuff, they always go to like vets for medical care. Right. They don't want to go to the actual hospital. That would be an associate. <laughs> yes. Your local veterinarian. We're like a dentist, right? Yeah. Um. So how do you... It's a good side gig. (laughs) It's definitely a gig. Um, (laughs) How do you become a member of Cosa Nostra? And I'm not telling you this so you can go and find Cosa Nostra and join, because, like, chances are you probably cannot join. Um, First and foremost, you must be Sicilian. Second, you must be a man. Okay? That's important. Mm -hmm. Um, You cannot be a relative or have any links at all to a police officer, a lawman, or a judge. So if you were, like, a roommate with a judge, like, people are going to think that there's something going on there. If your best friend's little sister married a judge, things get a little dicey. Mm. There's no age limit. Men as young as 15 and 16 have been initiated into Cosa Nostra. Uh, Prospective mafiosi are always tested for obedience, discretion, courage, ruthlessness, and espionage. The final test is usually always murder. So why oh, no. do they make them murder? The act of murder is used to prove the initiate's sincerity, okay? Um, to prove that he is not an undercover cop, for instance, because an undercover cop's not just going to kill a random civilian, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also to bind him into silence. There's this thing called the omerta, and that is the vow of silence that you take when you join the mob that is you will not tell you will not divulge any information to anybody especially not the police so Um, this bruschetti guy obviously did not adhere to that he did not he broke his vow silence he broke his honor code um and so like murder is to like bind you into silence because you if you break your 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 vow silence then you can also face murder charges yourself so initiation ceremony so there's a couple instances um, of people being arrested and then like through the process of interviewing, they kind of flip sides and they divulge a lot of information about the mobs. Because of this, we have a couple examples of what potential Cosa Nostra uh, initiation ceremonies will look like. I'm going to read you about, I'm going to tell you about one of them. So there's this guy, Giovanni Brusca. He was a former Sicilian mafia member. Um, and this is his version of being inducted into Cosa Nostra. He was invited to a banquet at a country house. Uh, Then he was brought into a room and there was all these mafiosas sitting around a table and all of them were armed. On the table, there was a pistol, a dagger, and a piece of paper with the image of a saint on it. He was questioned by the mafiosi about his commitment and his feelings towards criminality and specifically murder. When the other mafiosi were satisfied with his responses, The boss took the dagger and pricked his finger. Then they took the pricked finger and smeared the blood over the image of the saint. He then held the image in his hands. Um, The boss set the image on fire and he bounced the flaming from hand to hand. And as he was doing that, the boss whispered to him, if you betray Cosa Nostra, your flesh will burn like this saint. And I imagine the pistol was on the table um, if the mafiosi were not pleased with his responses. So, yeah, that's that's a thing. Very, very interesting. 
Okay, what else do I got here? Oh, this is interesting. 2007, the Sicilian police uh, discovered a list called the Ten Commandments, and they found it in the hideout of a mafiosa boss. Um, so there, these are the, the Ten Commandments of being the best member of Cosa Nostra you can be. Um, and if you don't follow these Ten Commandments, then good luck, right? So I'm going to read them to you. I really, really like, not liked this one, but I found it super interesting. Um, so mm-hmm. I'm going to go a little bit more into depth about the first one. No one can present himself directly to another of our friends. There must be a third person to do it. So this is basically the way that the mob will protect themselves from people who are trying to infiltrate, like police, undercover cops, things like that. Mm -hmm. So there's always a risk of these outsiders, you know, coming in and, you know, masquerading as mafioso and then infiltrating the organization to ensure that this doesn't happen. A mafioso must never introduce himself to another mafioso whom he does not personally know even if he knows the other through reputation. If he wants to establish a relationship, he must ask a third mafioso who they both personally know to introduce each other um, in a face-to-face meeting, which I think is... That makes sense. It does make sense. It can be complicated, though. Um, Somebody uh, raised an example of... There's a dad mafia mafia guy, right? His son is not Mm -hmm. in the mafia. He flies to Italy... He stays there for a while. He gets inducted into the mafia and he comes back. Neither of them know. So the son knows that his dad is potentially in the mafia, but he doesn't know for sure. And the dad knows that his son is potentially in the mafia, but he doesn't know for sure. So they can't tell each other that they're in the mafia until they have somebody that they both know that knows that they're both in the mafia introduce them, even though they're father and son. That's an awkward family dinner. Very awkward family dinner. I would hate to be there. It happened to me once. Never again. Okay, number two, never look at the wives of friends. Okay. Never be seen with cops. Okay. Mm-hmm. Don't go out to pubs and clubs. So mafia, uh, mafiosi are supposed to keep their wits about them at all times. And they're highly, highly urged to not participate in any kind of like mind-altering substance, whether it be alcohol or drugs or whatever, because they don't want to in a situation where they could slip up exactly always be available for cosa nostra this is a duty even if your wife is about to give birth so you know that happened one time and they were like we need to put that in the commandment he's like fucking joey um appointments must absolutely be respected and by appointments they mean people's position within the family so how they are appointed in the family at any given time Wives must be treated with respect. When asked for any information, the answer must be the truth. Money cannot be appropriated if it belongs to others or to other families. People who can't be a part of Cosa Nostra. Anyone who has a close relative in the police. Anyone with a two-timing relative in the family. Anyone who behaves badly and doesn't hold to moral values. Mm. It's a little vague, honestly. Well, it's kind of (laughs) hypocritical. Yeah, well, there you go. Mm. This whole thing. It's insane. So I'm going to end with a little um, aside of why do we think the mafia is 
like glamorized in our media. I'm speaking specifically of, you know, American media. I'm not sure mm-hmm. how it is in other countries. I know in Italy in, in particular, the mob is like still a very real threat and they control huge parts of Italian life. Um, and people still die at the hands of the mob. Whereas in America, the Italian mob doesn't feel as like real of a threat, but it's very much a threat for them there. And so in their media, they yeah. don't portray them in this like glamorized, immortalized way, the same way we do. Uh, I'm talking every type of media, film, literature, video games, board games, radio, everything. Mobs, mobsters, mafia people, they're all there. Um, some of the most popular films and TV shows of the 20th century are about the mob or other crime syndicates. Goodfellas, The Godfather, The Sopranos, Boardwalk Empire, Peaky Blinders, The Untouchables, Public Enemy, Scarface, The Departed, Black Mass, and most recently, The Irishman. Um, do you have any thoughts? Because I, I read a really cool article about it. Um, I don't know. I The more you talk about it, it just reminds it's like a gang, essentially. Right. But it, it is. they're white. So I feel like because they're white, they're kind of given like... A pass, right? You know. There, that, that um, is a thing for sure. Yeah, same as like you know the same way the Amish are held up, even though they're just as shady as some other um, religious sects, exactly. aka cults. Exactly. But um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um. So yeah. yeah, no, I totally agree with you. Um, it's especially interesting because a lot of um, you know, gangs like black gangs or even um like rappers or things like that they took a lot of inspiration i read a really cool article on complex so you can google this it's like a it's a complex wire gangs immortalized or something um Mm -hmm. they talk about how they draw a lot of inspiration from like you know mafia culture think about like the names of things like american gangster the jay-z album three six mafia that group like they pull Mm -hmm. um inspiration from them but i feel like Black people are always more demonized than white people, um, you know, so it's interesting. Yeah. It's interesting. What do you say in the, okay. Um, go ahead. Sorry. Go. No, go ahead. Uh, I am drawing. Like, oh, I, well, the thing about gangs is like, um, from what I've, I've researched, like a lot of times it's kind of one of the only viable courses, like. For a young man to take or, and women can be in gangs too um but you kind of like have to because because maybe you need the protection or you just need to belong uh i wonder if the mafia is the same it like, is, is yes okay it's like you kind of almost i mean you have a choice but you almost don't it's the same as like <laughs> not to bring it back to the amish but like yes amish can leave but can they really like no. it's very hard for them to leave exactly and this is a really really complicated issue um that obviously i'm like just glazing at the very i'm like we're just kind of peeking in squinting through like a very thick pane of glass you know um Mm -hmm. but you're right there's a huge socioeconomic um side of this that like a lot of people have no other options and no other choices and then they're kind of inducted into this lifestyle and that's all that they know their entire life and and once you're in you're you're stuck like it's very hard to leave that exactly so it's much more difficult than this is a mob, this is the gang, and they're bad. It's much more mm-hmm. difficult than that. Okay, so I'm going to talk to you about an article I found on The New Yorker by this um, journalist called Maria Konnikova. The article is, Why Do We Admire Mobsters? And I would absolutely recommend searching this out and reading it. Um, there's a lot of info in there. Um, Maria starts off by talking about how, as a country and as a people, like 
the United States, we don't glamorize all violent crime, just some violent crime. So like Son of Sam, for instance, and most serial killers, we do not glamorize that. There's like a, a, like a morbid intrigue there, but we don't glamorize mm-hmm. it in the same way that we glamorize the mafia. Like think about like the Irishman or Goodfellas or any of those movies. Um, yeah. You don't see that about Son of Sam. No, no, no. She goes on to talk about the historical implications of gangs in the U.S. Um, there's this professor that she highlights, James Finnickauer, who is a professor at Rutgers University and, and an author of a book called Mafia and Organized Crime, A Beginner's Guide. Um, apparently, this glamorization of the mafia in the U.S. started with the prohibition. So in the early 20th centuries in the United States, mobsters were small time. They kind of like ran rackets locally. They didn't really like expand globally. Um, but then the Volstead Act outlawed alcohol. Um, and prohibition was hugely unpopular. So these groups of men, these gangs, um, that kind of stood up to the, the this establishment that was hated by the people were seen as heroes rather than as criminals. Then, of course, Mario Puzo's book comes out, The Godfather. It insinuates that mobsters are men who care about their communities, live by a code of honor, that they're unaffected by politics, and they, they are not under the control of the quote-unquote establishment. And that was very um, appealing to the American people. Mm-hmm. Then the article goes on to talk about psychological distance, which I thought was interesting. It was coined by an NYU um, psychologist, um, Yakov Trope. It describes the phenomenon of mental distancing that takes place when we separate ourselves from events, people, emotions, and concepts. Um, As painful events recede into the past, our perceptions soften. For instance, our emotions cool down. And so that's why when you take time after like a particularly horrible event, it feels a little different than when it felt when it was immediately happening, right? Mm -hmm. That's called psychological distance. Um, It also allows for us to romanticize and feel nostalgia for almost anything. So like, think about your time at summer camp. It's been so long, but you just remember how amazing it was to sit on that tire swing and how you held Billy's hand on the dock. And I mean, if you were actually there, you were probably super freaking awkward and like Mm -hmm. covered in bug bites and sunburn and you were starving because they gave you one hot dog for the whole day. You know what I mean? Like, that's also psychological distancing. Uh, Let me see here. It provides like a filter, right? You know, it's like on Instagram. You got a filter on. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to read you one quote that I thought was interesting about psychological distancing in relation to the mob. Okay. Quote, but psychological distance doesn't require time. Under the right conditions, it can flourish in the moment. The psychological distance provided by otherness mimics the distance provided by time. It's not a phenomenon unique to the mafia. It's easy to glamorize warfare when there is no draft or to idealize anyone whose lifestyle seems risky and edgy without putting you personally at risk. Spies and secret agents, rebels without a cause, and beatniks of Jack Kerouac's on the road. We grant mobsters dignity because we enjoy contemplating the general principles by which they are supposed to have lived. Omerta, standing up to the unfair authority and protecting your own. Well, that explains it. That explains it. It's a great article. I'd recommend it. Um, I want to finish my section. I know I went on for a long time, um, but I did mention earlier that um, the mob is still like a very real thing in Italy. um, Mm -hmm. And mafia bosses have actually turned to social media to recruit teenagers as young as 14 years old to um, join their organizations. Most people in Cosa Nostra, like it's like 50% of the people are under 40 now. 
Um, that's how many oh, wow. young people are in the the mob. Um, so it is like hugely real, and it's it's affecting people as young as fourteen years old these days. And think about what I said about in the induction. If it's still anywhere like it was, that final test is almost always murder to be officially inducted into Cosa Nostra. Yeah, and like a random murder of an innocent person. Exactly. So that's that, kids. Thanks for tuning that's in. That. <laughs> Um, I'm kind of glad your topic went on for a little longer because my topic is not that long, but it is still interesting. So cool. It all worked out. Uh, Mine is from the USA Today crossword by Caitlin Reed, um, May 28th, 2020. And it's 14 across wedding application. Do you remember this? Henna. Yes. Nice. I'm going to talk about henna and also its use at weddings. Cool. Hey everyone, disclaimer Grace here once again. I wanted to pop in because this week my topic was about henna and we went into cultural appropriation. I said that I think it can be okay to get it, especially if you're traveling to a country that has henna as part of the culture, but I didn't go into it further and I should have, so that's why I wanted to pop in now. First of all, I am not the person who makes the call on whether henna is cultural appropriation or not. Um, I just want to clarify that. However, in my research, I did um, read a couple articles about that. And the general consensus that I saw was there are ways to get it done respectfully, um, especially if you are traveling to a country where henna is part of the culture. So I actually wanted to read uh, a quote from an article on a travel blog called Eco Wonderland run by Nadia Crow. She has lived most of her life in Malaysia and she is half Malay. She wrote an article called, Is Getting Henna Whilst Traveling Considered Cultural Appropriation and Is It Safe? She says, quote, When you go overseas and get henna from someone who practices it in their culture, I actually consider it a form of cultural appreciation. Supporting local artists, learning about its history, experiencing the process are all important parts of cultural cross-cultural exchange to me. It's a way for us to better understand each other. Personally, I only find issue when people use henna for things like festivals to look more boho. Plus, I also think it's best to get it from artists who actually have henna in their roots rather than someone who doesn't. Again, this is one. This is only one person. I did see um, a similar sentiment echoed in other articles that I read. But definitely, you know, if I'm wrong here, if you are from um, a culture that uses henna, please reach out to me. I am at Grace Topinka everywhere. I'd love to talk more about this. But yeah, I just wanted to pop this little clarification in here. And uh, yeah, back to the episode. So get excited. Okay. I'm excited. Um, if you don't know what henna is, I mean, you've probably seen it. It's like... Uh, what, do you live di- under a rock, huh? It's like um, brown. Like, it's kind of like... It's called a henna tattoo, but it's not a real tattoo because it's not permanent, but you usually see designs on people's hands. It's like a brownish uh, tint. It's so, a very ornate, usually looking beautiful yeah. design. Okay. So henna itself is a plant, a flowering plant that grows in hot climates like Africa and Northern Asia. Its flowers are used for perfume, but its leaves have um, a staining pigment called lossum in various hues from burnt orange to deep red. So to extract the actual henna dye, the leaves are dried off or dried out, and then they are like ground in a mortar pestle into a fine powder, powder, not power. Um, And then this is mixed with water and it can be used to dye clothes, hair and skin temporarily it's permanent for clothes and hair but for skin it's temporary yeah i've been thinking Uh, about doing henna dye on my hair just because i got nothing else going on i think well henna dye for your hair is um 
I'm, I'm not going to go that much into that, but I do know a little bit about it. It's usually like a reddish color, red yes. or brown. Yeah. So I think you could look good with henna dye, but it is permanent. Like I know. it cannot be taken off. I've, um, I've heard and, that and it doesn't yeah, last forever, it can forever, be dyed though. over. Yeah, I think it fades. Yeah. Um, Lush has henna hair dye, they but do. I don't think that's real henna. No, I don't it's think like it is mixed either. with other stuff. Yeah. But they call it gaka. That's ha- what it's called because it literally looks like poop. Yeah, it's... And, uh, yeah, that's, that's Lush. That. <laughs> if you don't know what Lush is, it's, like, this natural soap store that if you go in there, they will, and you ask them to, like, try out a soap, they will, like, sponge bathe you right in the middle of the store. <laughs> if that's your thing, it's go very, to Lush. Yeah. Um, it's very weird. But anyways, they do have henna hair dye there. It is, like, a natural dye, so it's free from chemicals of other hair dye. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, like this. <laughs> Leave a review if you want Chelsea to dye her hair with henna. <laughs> do it. I'll do it. Um, so not only is it used as a dyeing agent, but it also has health benefits, including the ability to bring down fevers, cure headaches, and cure skin issues. Okay. When it's used to dye the skin as a tattoo, the paste is applied to the skin, sometimes an intricate pattern. Um, the paste, you have to keep it on your skin, you let it dry, then it flakes off, and then it leaves a red or brown stain, um, that sticks around for a week or two, depending on the area of the body. Have you ever gotten henna done? I might have, like, oh, I think I went to Six Flags once when I was in, like, sixth grade and got henna on my hand. Yeah, I I got a um, peace sign and on, like, Miami Beach when I was in high school, and then I got, like, on my hip. And then in college, like, in one of our orientation, they had actual, like, a real henna artist who did, oh. like, the traditional henna design on the hands. But, yeah, it's, they put it on you, and it's kind of a raised area. You have to let the ink dry, and it kind of flakes off like a scab. Yeah. And then it leaves the dye underneath. If you didn't know how it worked, that's how it worked. <laughs> okay, so what about the origin of henna? The exact origin isn't clear. Uh, there's a disagreement between whether it started in India, Persia, or Egypt, since there was so much migration um, between them. It's kind of hard to tell. Sure. So henna grows in super hot climates, like I said. It's believed that desert communities were the first to start using it as the paste has a cooling effect. Remember I said earlier it could be used to bring down fevers. Okay. So they would apply the paste to their hands and to their feet to keep cool. But Is, they real Isn't this I'm sorry, not to like interrupt you, but I'm gonna interrupt you. Isn't it in mm-hmm. I'm always amazed that people discover this shit. Like who decided to walk over to this plant? pick off the leaves, dry them, put them in a paste, and then be like, I'm going to rub it on my feet. I just think, I'm just constantly amazed by humans. I'm just saying. I don't know. But there's not much else to do at the time, you know? This is like <laughs> ancient times. That's why nobody's like, discovering anything probably, now. <laughs> everything's already been discovered. They probably ground up all types of shit. Um, okay. <laughs> so they applied it to their hands and feet to keep cool, but then they started realizing once the paste dried off, it left a stain. So they decided to start using it for decoration. Some historians say that Cleopatra used henna to adorn her body 9,000 years ago. Okay. Egyptian mummies have been found with henna-dyed fingernails. Nice. So it was it was applied to the nails before they were mummified. I don't think I would like that color on my nails, to be honest. But hey, people still People still do it today. I, yeah. Um, I think it wouldn't look good with our skin tone. No. But uh, there are wall paintings from 1600 BCE and statuettes from 1500 to 500 BCE that show women with raised hands with markings consistent with henna. Mm. So this has been around five ever. For a long time. Okay. Yes. Ancient Egyptians and many indigenous and aboriginal people around the world believed that the naturally derived red substances of ochre, blood, and henna had qualities that improved human awareness of the Earth's energies, 
Therefore, it may have been applied to help people keep in touch with their spirituality. Mm. Henna is a huge part of Indian culture. Many gods and goddesses of Hindu religions are pictured with henna designs on their hands. An application is called Mahandi, and it is applied for almost all special occasions and festivals throughout the year, including weddings, births, Diwali, just to name a few. Mm-hmm. Henna is often seen as good luck for a bride on her wedding day. And in fact, the night before the wedding is called the night of the henna. These days, it's not always the night right before, but it's kind of like a, it seems similar to like a bachelorette party or a bridal shower or a combo of both. Amazing. Um, but it's popular for both Muslim and Hindu weddings. Indian brides, along with all their female friends and family, gather to be adorned in henna henna patterns as a symbol of luck and blessings. And the bride always has the most intricate um, pattern, of course. Pregnant women often have their stomach adorned with henna patterns. And it is tradition that as long as the henna stain stays on your skin, you don't have to do any housework. So it's kind of a way for new brides and expectant mothers to, like, get time off. Yeah. Uh... Basically, during their honeymoon or their baby moon. Okay. In India, it's believed that the deeper the color of the henna on a bride's hand, the better her relationship would be with her mother-in-law, her future (laughs) mother-in-law. In some places, it is also said to signify the strength of love between the bride and groom. Many traditional henna designs are secret symbols of prosperity, love, loyalty, fertility, and good luck. These designs can take anywhere from a couple hours to a couple days to finish. Not like day straight, but you have to like keep going. Yeah. Um, In some countries, even animals like horses and donkeys have their hooves, paws, and tails hennaed for special celebrations. I kind of love that. Yeah. It's it's non-toxic, so it's fine. Um, Although I don't know if a donkey would stand still long enough for you to do a henna design. Donkey would kick me right in the goddamn head. Uh, maybe the donkeys in India are different. Okay, true. So there not are mules, different types. Donkeys. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> not mules. Mules do not get henned, okay? They Actually, I don't know. They <laughs> might. But they definitely can't have babies. Um, okay, so there are different types. If you don't know what we're talking about, listen to our last episode about hybrid animals. Um, <laughs> so there are different type of henna designs kind of based on regions. So the Indian henna designs often feature intricate lace, floral, and paisley patterns, and they always they often incorporate representations of the sun on the palm. Henna art often covers the wearer's entire hands, arms, and feet with very little space between the lines. I think that's the one that most people, right. when you think of henna, as we think of. Um, among African cultures, henna patterns tend to be bold and geometric. They're also very cool looking. Um, and then Arabic designs are usually more delicate, often featuring feminine floral motifs. Hmm. And if you're on Miami Beach, you can find henna designs in heart and peace sign <laughs> shapes <laughs> or six flags. Oh, my God. I wouldn't get it uh, now, honestly. But well, it from what I've read, I feel like it's fine to get it as a non-Indian person. Like, because okay. um, it's, it's just like a decoration. Right. It's okay. not the same as, um, like, a bindi. I'll talk more about that sure. stuff. Okay. Um, but, like, if you're visiting India, a lot of people get it as a souvenir. Okay. And it's fine because you're supporting, like, local, you know, the local henna designers. Nice. So, I didn't see anywhere specifically where it says, like, you have to be a woman to be a um, henna designer. But it's, like, from what I've read, it seemed like most of them are women. And in countries where women aren't discouraged from working outside the home, they can find socially acceptable, lucrative work doing henna. Okay. So Morocco, 
Mauritania, Yemen, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, and the United Arab Emirates. Um, and in India, many other countries, and many other countries, have thriving women henna businesses. So, it's like, it's on days of festivals, I read that, like, they keep their house open all night to be, like, doing henna on everyone. Because wow. everyone wants to get henna done. It's like, yeah. if you, you went to Lollapalooza, right. you'd want to get henna done. Yeah. Right. Uh, so, I read this article on Smithsonian Mag dot com a quest to master the art of henna by shoba narian and she was um she's a mother and she was on a mission to she's indian and hindu she's on a mission to learn how to do henna so she can decorate her daughter's hand when her daughter gets married now her daughter's like a sophomore in college but she knew that like she needed to practice for a long time before she was able to do it and she wanted to do it herself instead of hiring someone Mm -hmm. so she talks about her own wedding um which was an arranged marriage where her henna lady wanted to hide her husband-to-be's name in her henna design. So apparently this is a common North Indian tradition, uh, where after the wedding rituals, the groom has to hold his wife's hand and search for his hidden name. Oh my god, I love that. Like, I love that. She says, quote, it was a great icebreaker, particularly in traditional marriages where the couple were seeing each other for the first time. Wow. And by the way, she says she's still very happily married to her husband. Wow. Uh, she also spoke about the stain of the henna in a bride's time off, which I mentioned earlier, saying, quote, once the design faded, she went from being a bride to a cog in the wheel of a vast Indian household. Damn. Uh, she mentions the henna design is written about in the Kama Sutra as a means of seduction. So especially application on palms, shoulders and backs. And she also mentioned that you can get your boobs henna or decorated, but it's not with henna. It's with saffron and musk. So I don't know why the difference, but <laughs> if you wanted to know, if you were interested. I was, I was actually going to ask, so thank you. Yeah. So Shoba went back to India to start learning how to apply henna for her daughter's future wedding. She meets up with a teacher um, who has her endlessly repeat designs on pen and paper. Henna is not erasable. It is not forgiving at all to mistakes. So you have to practice in pen. Um, or she could be like us and... <laughs> Our crossword usage with pen and scribble out all her mistakes and piss people off. Get that white uh, out. That would not look very good. <laughs> We've yeah. done that once or twice. There is no white out for henna. No. Okay. Um, so once she practiced like over and over and over again with the pen and paper, the designs, she moved on to using a flour paste that does not stain. It has the same consistency of cake icing and it's kind of piped in a similar way. If you've seen like henna applications, it's like a cone mm-hmm. uh, with the paste inside. So she said, like icing a cake, the hardest part is maintaining constant pressure. Keep in mind, these designs can take hours to do. God. So these professional henna people. Have um, strong hands. Yes, they have to. My God, show me your hands. I would say that to the henna person. I'd be like, show them to me. (laughs) (laughs) What's your secret? So she traveled to a different city to meet with another teacher. And after practicing for a couple hours, um, she said, quote, all around us, parrots shriek, rain clouds gather, school children return home, chattering excitedly. Someone giggles. This is the milieu of Mendy. Remember, Mendy is mm-hmm. an application. Women gather together to take a break from their chores to bring some beauty and lightness into their hands and lives. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So Shoba left, leaves India with the hopes that her henna application will improve. She said it did improve while she was there, but she has a couple years before her daughter gets married. Uh, but I liked what she said about the end, or at the end of the article. She said, um, quote, 
Tradition is a transmission over eons involving delivery, handing over, and for the student, surrender along with practice. With Mendy, I feel like I am reaching back into India's deep history to grasp what is tangible and beautiful and shrink it into the palm of my hand. That's so lovely. Yeah. Um, so this article was actually written a couple years ago. Maybe I'll like find her on Instagram to <gasps> oh see if gosh. her we daughter got married and if she did. If uh, anybody followed the story, let us know. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll see what I can find after. I'll tweet about it if I find anything interesting. Um, but in this article, she talked about how henna is one of the 16 adornments of the bride okay. in Indian Hindu tradition. So since the clue was a wedding application this kind of fits in. So I wanted to talk about the 16 adornments. Let's do it. Um, okay. So number one is the bridal dress. That's kind of obvious. It's traditionally bright with vibrant colors like red and gold. Mm-hmm. So it's a little different. Uh, number two is the hairstyle, which is typically an updo decorated with a floral arrangement and jewelry on the forehead. Wow. Um, you see oh like my God, the big, they're always so, The pictures of Indian weddings are just so gorgeous. I'm like... This is so much more interesting than what white people I do. Know. <laughs> it's because they have this they have this list of 16 adornments that make you look like bomb. <laughs> they're like bomb as hell. Oh my god. They're like, honey, you're gonna be bomb on your wedding day. Yeah. Um, number three is the heavy and intricate neck piece. A lot of times um one of these neck pieces is presented to the bride from the groom at the wedding, and it is a sign of being a married woman. Hmm. Uh, number four is bangles. A lot of them. Those are bracelets, if you don't know. Uh, number five is henna, as we already talked about. Number six is a waistband, which is usually gold and embellished. Okay. Number seven is payal. And sorry if I'm pronouncing these wrong, but that is an anklet with tiny bells. Oh, yeah. Which I've seen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, number eight is a baju band, which is an armband, usually gold and adorned, worn on the upper arm. Mm-hmm. That was like the cool, it was like an arm cuff. Oh, yeah. Um, but it looks so cool. Okay. Uh, number eight, or sorry, number nine is an RC, which is a big ring. Traditionally, I mean, they're huge. It almost takes up like your entire hand. Traditionally, these are supposed to have a mirror embedded in them, which enables the bride to catch a glimpse of her husband before the wedding ceremonies. She probably, like, can't look directly at him, but she can, like, check out in her gigantic ring. That is ring. freaking cute. Yeah. Oh, my God! Um, number 10 is the Mangtika, which is a hair accessory worn in the part of the hair. So, oh, yeah. I've seen this, too. That looks so cool. I know. Like, our parts are just boring. Um, but they're usually, like, I don't know. how to. If you've seen them, you've seen them. If you, if you um, know, you know. Okay. If you know, you know. Just Google number it. Number this is something that I'd seen before, but wasn't sure what it was. Number 11, Sindor, which is a red powder that the groom applies to the bride's hair part as part of the wedding ceremony. Oh, yes. Yes, I've seen that, too. Yeah. Number 12 is Bindi. So the Bindis are the red dots that are worn in the center of the forehead. They have a religious connotation, and they're also the sacred mark of a married woman. Mm. So this is one of those things that sometimes you see at, like, Coachella. Um Wide eyes there's at a difference, you, yeah. Coachella <laughs> there's folks. a difference between like, uh, like putting jewels and stuff on your face versus having like the center jewel. I mean, the bindi is red traditionally, f- mm-hmm. from what I read. Um, but I think you know, I was you were saying earlier, you might not get henna. I feel like henna is different because it's really just decorative. Sure. You know, okay. The yeah. bindi has like a religious connotation right. to it. Thirteen is. Anjana, which is eyeliner on the your lower eyelid. 
which I wouldn't want to wear because my eyes are too small for that. Number 14 <laughs> is carnful, which are earrings that are often quite heavy and ornate. I and see, yeah. this was, I've seen those and I read that um, sometimes like they're so heavy that they kind of hurt to wear in your ears. So a lot of times they're connected by a chain uh, like above your ear. So if you've ever seen like I hadn't noticed that before, but then I was looking at pictures and like, oh yeah, a lot of them do have chains that like go up yes. kind of into your hair, but that's what they're for because they're so heavy. Interesting. Oh, I love this. Uh, number 15 is a nath, which is a nose ring that's worn on the left nostril. Right. I have my nose pierced on the right, but also sometimes these are really big rings and you see, right. I always thought the chain was like connected to the earring, but it's not. It's connected to that's like, the, you know, behind your ear, or your hair so that you can support the weight of it. And then the final step, number 16, is itar, which is perfume. Oh, so wow. you do all those things. You're ready, you're ready for your wedding. Oh you're my ready God. for your wedding. I love um, that. That is so, it's so, yeah. it's so interesting. I know. This henna, or just like re reading about it and looking at pictures, it's amazing I know. Um, what these people can do. And then like, yeah, weddings, they have their whole hands and like arms, their feet henna It looks so cool. Oh, my God. A dream. Yeah. Yeah, it's so beautiful. I would love to go to a um, Indian wedding. <laughs> I know. I've I've known someone who went for like the whole like five day event. Yeah, because it's like a very long. You know, there's something to do every day if you're doing a mm -hmm. traditional Indian wedding. It's very cool. Yeah. Although I don't under like you know how now sometimes you have or people get to a certain age where you're going to a wedding like every weekend. I mean, how do you make time for that? Unsubscribe. Let us I'm know. Sorry. If, I'm sorry. If you have a lot of Indian friends or if you are Indian and you have a lot of like weddings in your family, how do you make time to do for, that? Like all these weddings. I feel like it should be something that the family as a whole decides like we're not going to have our kids at the same time. So they're not the same age, you know? Maybe. Yeah. I don't Dude. know. Anyway, a great topic. But yeah, thank you. Uh, but that's Henna. I love it. Cool. Um, I used, I feel like I used henna to give myself my stick and poke tattoo. Did I tell you that? No. Oh. But now well, I know. Now I thought I you know. just used regular ink. Some people use henna to do um, fake freckles. They do. Yeah. On their face. Yeah. But you have to be careful because a lot of the henna that you can buy in the store that's in the cone has, there's something, it's called like black henna. And it's henna that has this additive to it, which makes the color darker. Right. But it's, the additive is like it was voted like top allergen in 2003 or something which <laughs> gotta love it is a thing yeah so be careful yeah. um like if you want to use henna make sure you're using the right stuff preferably buy from like you know a, a henna local artist indian supplier i'm sure Div devon market has henna dyed they henna might. powder they might yeah i guess we'll um, find out yeah <laughs> if if you see Chelsea with bright red hair next time, then you'll know. Uh, well, uh -huh. all right. Well, that's that. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. We are two girls, one crossword. No, we are. We well, we're yes. the good evening girls, and you're listening to two girls, one crossword. See, Grace has got me all messed up. It's all her fault. She's got me crazy. I can't think straight. I make her nervous. Um, if you want to talk to us, you can follow us on Twitter at the Good Eve Girls. You can follow us on Instagram at the Good Evening Girls. You can follow us on TikTok at the Good Eve Girls. Oh my god! And don't forget to subscribe. I don't think anyone has followed us on TikTok. No. If you have, uh, we don't know. Let us know. Um, but you could also subscribe on YouTube. Remember, search the Good Evening yes. Girls or Two Girls One Crossword. You will find us. Hit subscribe. Watch us. Don't watch us. Whatever you want to do. 
please, if you haven't already, leave a review and rating. It really uh, helps our egos. On iTunes. We're yes, very sensitive. We need that. Yeah. And then we're going to hit 50 episodes next week. So we're trying to think of something fun to do. Not to, not to set the expectations, expectations high because we might not think of anything fun. But yeah, we're not very fun people, as you guys know. Yeah. So, <laughs> but we're almost there. So we will see you then for our 50th episode. We will. Oh my God, 50. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.